Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show, where we explore spiritual ideas and books that help you live a better life. Hosted by spiritual teacher and author of If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate, Jason Napolitano. Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show. I am your host, Jason Napolitano, and on the phone, as usual, we have co-host Chris Sheridan. Hi, Chris. Hi, Jason. Good to be here. Great to have you here. We are speaking again this week on the Ancient Mysteries and Secret Societies, and this is part three of that series of talks. It's going to be Roman numeral four, or IV, if you don't know Roman numerals, in the big uh, Manly Hall book. In the small one, if you have the Penguin book and you're following along, that is page 67 in that one. And as I said, I'm your host, Jason Napolitano. I am the author of If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate. And Chris is the author of The Spirit in the Sky, and both of those books are available for sale now. So please support us and keep this, uh, this podcast on if you dig what we're doing uh, by buying our books and checking out our websites. I am at CosmicEye.org, C-O-S-M-I-C dot org, and Chris is at ChrisSheridan.com, C-H-R-I-S-S-H-E-R-I-D-A-N.com. So there's our standard plug every week that we like to share. Uh, in addition, please uh, vo- uh, please uh, go ahead and rate us or, or review us on iTunes. That helps a great deal uh, to get more listeners and for people to know that we're here. And you can give us some feedback about what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to see more of, or hit us up here on Anchor at anchor.fm. There's a, there's a link where you can actually send in uh, questions. You can leave a recording. And we would love to hear from you. If there's something you want to hear or something in one of the podcasts you didn't understand or you want to go deeper into, please uh, go ahead and hit us up and we, will, uh, we would love to interact with you. So let's go ahead and get into this. We're going to first uh, kind of set this up. We talked about this a little bit before the show. And uh, Chris and I wanted to bring up the point that, you know, it's important sometimes to take a look at what we're studying, why we're studying it. You know, it's fun to go into this material. It is neat uh, material and it's interesting. And, you know, there's a lot of attraction to it. If you're interested in the esoteric or occult or the hidden history, Illuminati, all of these sorts of things, Freemasonry, it's all uh, very, very interesting. But in the end, you know, there also has to be a payoff personally. And so I wanted to kind of get into a couple ideas and Chris wanted to share some stuff as well about why we're, we're working on this stuff, why the secret teachings and why Manly Hall and uh, in particular, but in general, you know, why we do this work, this philosophical or spiritual work at all. Um, You know, and one thing I always go back to when looking at Manly Hall's work, especially in secret teachings, the very first um, chapter, the very first thing Manly Hall says is philosophy is a science of estimating values. And what I get out of that is that philosophy teaches you to estimate what is valuable in life. It helps you to, you know, to sort of uh, discern the, the wheat from the chaff, as it were, um, the, the good from the not so good, the helpful from the unhelpful and so on. And so I think that's one of the most valuable things is being able to develop a philosophy for life whereby you can go after the, the good, the beautiful, the true and all of those philosophical principles uh, by developing, you know, a way of, 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 of estimating values. Like, what is valuable in my life? What do I find valuable, ultimately speaking, and things like that. Do you want to comment on that a little bit? Well, you have to, even before you rate something, 
as whether it's valuable or not. You have to really kind of see it for what it is. And again, that's another one of the reasons for having a spiritual or philosophic plan of study is that you are looking at things maybe for what they really are, and then it becomes more apparent, or then you have more information from which to make a judgment whether this is something I value. For example, you know, society and everything else tells us that you know, looking a certain way or having a certain thing or income or a car, uh, that these things are valuable and they have some value. But if we look at those things as being, oh gosh, almighty important, then we're not going to see the value of what, what good is spiritual abundance if I don't have abundance in my pocketbook. You know, you're not going to even see that as value. But if you can learn about these things, man, I believe the world is a school and we're here to learn. And we all learn at different levels. It's a big one-room schoolhouse. Uh, but if we can learn about these things and maybe uncover some of these truths, have an experience with these spiritual values, that maybe then they would become more valuable. So it's, it's training the mind to be able to see um, what is valuable. And then it becomes a matter of determining, yes, in that uh, discernment on, on what is helpful in my That's life. That's a very, very good point. Very succinctly put. Thank you, my friend. Um, yeah. It reminds me of uh, the uh, the little plaque that was above the doorway before you would head into the Delphic uh, Oracle. And it's, you know, that famous statement, know thyself, know thyself. And I think that really these, these uh, philosophical and spiritual studies are tools to learn more about yourself. What are you about? What do you value? Where do you come from? What is your true substance or nature? Are you just a, a body, you know, that, you know, when it goes to, to death, uh, disintegrates and that's that? Or is there something more? Is there a soul? Is there a spirit? You know, delving into that and getting to know those, those truths for yourself, I think, is, is one of the, is one of the, uh, the goals of philosophy. In essence, and you're right. Uh, is school? You know, this is a school for us to learn. So, at any rate, I just wanted to kind of get into that before we got into uh, what we were talking, what we were talking about today, which is again the ancient mysteries and secret societies, part three of Manley Hall's Secret Teachings of All Ages, a fantastic book that you must buy. Uh, it it is a, yes. it is a must it is a must own, and you know, and remember. It's, it's, an, it's an encyclopedic outline. It's not even an encyclopedia. <laughs> it's, it's so condensed that it's just an encyclopedic outline. But that said, it's very, very dense, very, very compact. Every sentence is, you know, could be a paragraph or a page. It's very, very, yeah. very loaded. And it requires unpacking and looking uh, maybe more deeply or looking at other, other sources. So we can't cover... <laughs> you know, three different no. secret societies in, in, you know, 40 minutes sure. or something, nor could he in a few no, pages, exactly. but he really got the more you know, relevant and important um, aspects of it. But, you know, you can read them and they do stand on their own. Even if you know nothing about them, you will know more by reading through these things, but it's also an opportunity to go deeper into exactly. these traditions. And he leaves references. No, that's, that's, and, uh, very other good. that's a very too. good point as well. And, uh, you know, really all we can do in these short sessions is kind of point out some of the things that we think are interesting, some of the things that catch our eye, 
Uh, but we really encourage you to, to read these chapters yourself and, and wrestle with them and, and go through and mark out uh, what you think is important and, and, and think about how those, those ideas affect you in your own life. So that's one of the ways to really grapple with this material and really make it come alive for you, for yourself, you know, and, 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 and listen to us and, you know, hopefully we can give, uh, you know, some of the, some of the wisdom or little bits of knowledge that we've gained over the years in studying this material. You know, Chris, you were at PRS for, for how many years, 12 years or 12 years. years. And you have your degree from there as well. You have a master's degree in spiritual psychology from uh, university of philosophical research, which is a huge honor. And you're one of few people that have that. And, uh, you know, I was there for like what, two years, I think, but I studied there for many years and that's where Chris and I actually met at the uh, Philosophical Research Society, which is Manley Hall's uh, foundation that he created. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, we have pretty good insight into this book, but we're learning as well. You know, it's a, it's a, uh, what can I say? It's, I mean, we're, we're all on this learning journey, right? And, and we are ostensibly we are. teaching this material, but we're also learning as we go. And that's, that's the beauty of it. So, all right, so let's get into this. So like the three, uh, groups that he really talks about in this chapter are the Eleusinian mysteries. And then he gets into the Orphic mysteries, the mysteries of Orpheus, and then, of course, uh, follows it up with uh, uh, Dionysus and Bacchus. And really, the bulk of the, inf- the information and the bulk of the important material is centered on the Eleusinian mysteries. And uh, it, it, it's, it seems that he feels, and I think a lot of people feel this way that have done research in these, into these ancient mystery schools, that the Eleusinian mysteries were probably the most important and, uh, and far-reaching of the mysteries and, and ended up really influencing much of what came after. And that's really what's, what he's, I think he's trying to lay out in these, in these chapters to come. You see the kind of um, trajectory of, of this thought and symbolism through the mythology and through the rites and rituals of these different, different groups and schools. But the Eleusinian uh, mystery schools were one of the, uh, one of the most famous. And he says the most famous of the ancient religious mysteries were the Eleusinian, whose rites were celebrated every five years in the city of El- Eleusis to honor uh, Demeter, or Ceres, and her daughter Persephone. Uh, when he speaks of those five years, that's the greater mysteries. Then the lesser mysteries, of course, were celebrated uh, every year. So at any rate, he, he, he goes on to point out how those, those mysteries spread out even into Roman Britain and that they, they encompass a lot of, a lot of other groups work who in a sense, most like the Christian church that unfolded a lot of uh, pagan face and so forth. And and those beliefs, the Eleusinian mysteries were sort of the forerunner of that. Um, well, he mentions they go back um, perhaps 1,400 years uh, before the Christian era, which is about 1,000 years before Socrates and yeah. Plato, uh, around the time maybe of Moses, if that's, you know, if we can put a timeline mm-hmm. on it. Good so point. So it's very, very old. And he also mentions that they survived through the beginning of the official Christian era um, in the 4th yeah. century. So there's... You know, there's almost 2,000 years, well, about 1,800 years right there, um, of it having a pre 
uh, a life before <laughs> the Christian era and continued after. And also that it trickled in, it had spread out so much um, that women and children were allowed in the Yes, uh, yes, that was an uh, important Lucius, part. Which is, so its reach was probably, so to say that it was the most important one includes the fact that it was, it had a long time period and it had a dispersion uh, that, that maybe some of the other ones yes, didn't have, yes. uh, either geographically as well as, um, you know, gender, uh, that, that inclusivity, uh, women inclusivity and, and children well. would also. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, knew I knew you were groping <laughs> for that word. I could, I, it was on the tip of my tongue, but, um, <laughs> you yeah, very good point. And, um, again, I mean, a lot of this stuff too is, is, uh, is more, um, feminine in its orientation uh, which is interesting you know you, you can see these early developments where the feminine is much more revered it's much more Im- important in the whole scope of religious understanding and uh you know that uh that of course kind of changed as time went on i mean early christianity certainly uh was was skewed more towards the patriarchy as was as was judaism the feminine was important in those religions but as time went on particularly later iterations of it, it kind of uh, was, was, was sort of pushed down. And I think that's a, uh, it's a, it's a great shame. And, and, you know, what's happening now today, I think in a lot of ways in society is that the feminine is being sort of resurrected. And, and in some ways, you know, oftentimes we're, you know, when we're trying to balance something out, we may go for, for, further to, to that side of things so that we eventually come back to the center. Uh, so, so I think we're, we're finding that, you know, we're finding a balance again in society. And I think that's a fantastic thing. So, but the heart of this, this Eleusinian mystery is really this mythology with, um, with Ceres or, or Demeter, uh, who was a daughter of Zeus and Rhea. And she was the goddess of, of growth and grain, growth of vegetation, sort of this mysterious evolution of life uh, f- that flows out of death. And then Persephone symbolizes the, the actually the new life itself springing forth out of the the dead seed. She, of course, uh, Persephone was the daughter of uh, Demeter, and um, she she was captured by uh, Pluto and brought into the underworld. And so, you know, you have this sort of uh, vegetation symbolism, the living and dying. You've got the cycles of the season things like that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Cause I think that's an important part of the symbolism. Well, continuing on the, you know, the seed does get planted in the underworld in mm-hmm. underground, uh, so to speak in order for it to, uh, you know, we bury things that are dead, but yeah, burying the seed is actually what then allows it to spring forth and bring new life. And this uh, being taken or falling into uh, the underworld um, Persephone is uh, the soul in the human being that gets wrapped up, that gets consumed by this material world. And again, even the material world, mater, you know, it's, it's a feminine, um, you know, the mm-hmm. earth, mother earth. It's, it's again, this, this uh, feminine um, symbolism uh, that is the nurturer and bringer forth of all life, but it also takes the dead back into her womb, so to speak, uh, afterwards. So this continues on, but this search that, um, you know, that is going on, you know, looking for, um, you know, her daughter, 
and um, so Ceres, um, the mother of Persephone, is on this quest to recapture, to reclaim what has been lost. And it's interesting that it's a that it's a daughter. Um, you know, as we see later in some of these other ones, it's it's a male mm-hmm. and a female, and it's the feminine, the masculine. That this is this is really all kind of feminine, except for maybe Pluto, but uh, but that it's it's this you know reclaiming this part of your heart. Um, this part of your soul. Yeah. Well, this, uh, that, the soul that gets... itself, actually, uh, you know, because yeah. they, they later on uh, go to liken, liken it to the, you know, the idea of psyche and psyche is another word for soul. So I think that's a good, that's a good point. And how many of us and how many people do we know, uh, even if they don't know it, that um, they've somehow sold their soul or, or just neglected, neglected it. it. Maybe sure. lost it. Um, so, well, yeah, I got to do this, but I got to work. Well, I have to cut my hair because I want to get well. Yeah, I know I'd really like to do this, but, and yes, we have to make compromises. We do have to do things <laughs> to get by. We live in this world. Uh, but if it so much gets buried and time and space are removed from this heartstring that connects us with our soul, it becomes, um, you know, it becomes vital and, and very, very important to reclaim this. So this mystery is this drama that reminds us of that, that shows us, you know, that our soul can get enwrapped in matter and that it, it is necessary, that it is needed to bring it back and bring it up from this underworld. It, I think in depth psychology, there's a notion of a Pluto crisis. Uh, that is, if there is some issue or something uh, your soul, your heartstrings uh, that have been neglected and pushed down. We tend to push these things away, even the good stuff we shove down in the shadow. Uh, but that at some point, Pluto will rise, that, that some crisis will happen in your life, uh, maybe in your outer world, you know, firing from a job, divorce, different things. Um, and then that creates this opening then that you have to go back. That it's, so the crisis is maybe a bad thing, uh, but it's a call to action to go down and reclaim this and bring it back. And it's interesting how Ceres, when she's looking for and searching for her lost child, uh, she carried two torches, intuition and reason, which I thought is a really interesting uh, and very significant way. How do you search for the soul? Well, intuition and reason. If we follow this this mystery... So it's bringing that to to this process of reclaiming the uh, the lost soul. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. The uh, you know we talked about this a bit earlier before the show, but it was interesting how these you know these mysteries are of course divided into to two main main uh, parts: the lesser mysteries, which have to do with the Persephone uh, mythology and and the sort of ascent of soul into into the underworld and then the greater mysteries which uh have to do with really the freeing of the soul from the underworld in essence so it's one is you know soul coming into matter and one is you know the greater one is matter coming being freed excuse me soul being freed from matter so that that both are necessary in in the development of uh you know towards enlightenment towards understanding and wisdom but uh you know they're two they're two different stages on that path which is which is very interesting by the way i wanted to recommend uh really quickly in here um a nice mythology book that that i that i use often 
it's called Murray's Manual of Mythology, M-U-R-R-A-Y, uh, Murray's Manual of Mythology. And it is in the public domain. I think you can find it on uh, that uh, sacredtext.org or, or on Google Books or whatever the, uh, the PDF, uh, wherever the PDF books are found. Or you can get cheap copies of it on Amazon. But it's a great, uh, it's a great book to have when you're studying Manly Hall's work. Because if there's a, a god or goddess or a concept or so forth that you don't understand, you can quickly go to that book and kind of get a, a real good background on it. Uh, so I just wanted to, to make that point. Um, Very good. So one thing, too, that he brought up, which I found really interesting, was that these mysteries really uh, and these all of these secret schools are are sort of are, are connected. And I'm just going to read this quote because I like it. I like it very much. It's uh, from page 67. And Manley Hall says, there is every reason to believe that all so-called secret schools of the ancient world were branches of one philosophic tree, which with its roots in heaven and its branches on earth is like the spirit in man, an invisible but ever present cause of the objectified vehicle that gave it expression. The mysteries were the channels through which uh, this one philosophic light was disseminated. So I think that's what's important. Uh, one of the important things about looking at this Eleusinian uh, mystery school and how that it influences the different philosophical schools that come after it and so on is that really it's just a continuation of this, of this universal wisdom uh, coming down to us as human beings through these different different religious and mythological and symbolic uh, groups and movements uh, that we you know that we study and that are still alive today. I mean, this wisdom is still alive. It can be found. It can still be studied. It can be found within. It can be found within the groups that exist today, even um, because you know it's universal and it's and it's timeless and it's it's eternal. And so that's something to remember, too, is to look behind all of these different uh, these different religions and these different ideas to find the 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 universal truths and the universal messages. And I think that's something that Manly Hall tries to make clear throughout the secret teachings is they're not disconnected. They're all connected. And you've got to look deeper in order to find the truth uh, beneath the sort of multiplicity, the unity beneath the multiplicity. Would you uh, agree with that? I agree, and it's not to defend the uh, multiplicity um, so much, but these particular schools and sects um, arise in particular times at particular places. So uh, you could even say that maybe one could arise again today. You could have a new mystery school that uh, has technology involved, and you look at the movie The Matrix, um, but that covers this same and origin, you know, this original tree of wisdom um, that we need, sometimes we need these truths, these universal truths to be cloaked or dressed in a way that we can understand for our time, for where we are in our culture and development that's relevant to our time sure. and place, even though underneath it, it's, it's very, very much you know, drawn from the same thing. It's like a, a well that you can, you can dip into and you could water this crop or that crop or yourself or wash or, you know, you do all these things yeah. with it. Um, but it has an original source and an original purpose that, you know, I believe throughout time, you know, has been maintained and, and been reproduced. Um, but it is, 
it is good to know that that underneath it all and i think as you know manly hall is laying out um he's giving a lot of details and a lot of specific information about this myth or that that one um and at the same time he's also laying the case that um, that they are similar in principle and also even in um the purpose exactly yeah. That they might, you know, bring the value that, exactly. you know, what, what they serve for us. So it's both. It's both this, you know, but I, I think, you know, again, the thing to keep in mind is try not to get too caught up in you know, this one versus yeah. that one when they're actually, you know, more of the same. No, I'd say then then different. And we have the lens of sure, history. Sure. We can look back and say, oh, gosh, there's millions of these mystery schools. Well, they were localized at a particular place and time when they were sure. thriving and they probably didn't have that, you know, historical context, you know, that, that we have now. So they were relevant and important uh, unto themselves. Yes. Yes. No, that's a good point. And uh, I think uh, I'm reminded of uh, Joseph Campbell talking about uh, Adolf Bastian's idea of, uh, you know, the local, the localized version of a myth and then the universal version of a myth and he he had two great german terms which were multisyllabic and i cannot remember the germans have such great terms for everything with you know those was it walton sean no it's something like that's, that's the like world view. view this is it's something like yeah. the Folkengesteigen or something. I, I, my german is is is, is non-existent it, it, it one one is the sort of folk view and the sort of localized ah, version yes. of mythology. And then there, the one was <coughs> sort of a universalized or archetypal version of the myth. They're both interrelated and they're both, they both have the same ultimate meaning, but you know, it's as if the archetypal plays itself out in different ways amongst different cultures at different times and places in, in history and so on. And I think that's an interesting, you know, tie into what, what you were saying. One one thing I wanted to bring up, uh, the last thing before we move on to those second second parts, or those other two parts, the other mystery schools, is this sort of encapsulated belief that uh, Manley Hall speaks about of, of of the Eleusinian belief, sort of overall what they were striving for in essence. And he said the crux of the Eleusinian argument was that man is neither better nor wiser after death than during life. If he does not rise above ignorance during his sojourn here, man goes at death into eternity to wander about forever making the same mistakes he made here. And of course, I'm reminded of Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Gnosticism, whereby, you know, one's efforts are very important in, in freeing oneself from ignorance or delusion uh, in order to, to move to higher levels of spiritual understanding. And I think sometimes in, in the modern world, um, especially in the the sort of Christian world, we have an idea whereby uh, faith is the sort of only important thing. Belief is the only important thing to sell, you know, in, in terms of salvation. And that's a very sort of modern view in Christianity. I think in earlier iterations of Christianity and the earlier Christian groups, there was much more emphasis on on works. And and James himself speaks about in the Bible about faith and works. So it's important to remember that, that both are necessary. We need to work for our own salvation, but at the same time, we do need to have faith in God or, you know, the powers within or the gods within or however you want to look at it. 
and and know that there is something higher that is helping us but also we need to you know put feet to to that we need to put work into you know into our own understanding and again that gets back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the episode why we're studying this material in the first place to become better people to live better lives to free ourselves from delusions to hopefully help others do the same right so um, I think all that stuff is important in looking at that. So since uh, we don't have a ton of time, we're going to get into these, uh, these, these other parts. Uh, we'll get into the Orphic Mysteries. Let's talk a little bit about that. Why don't you take that since you are the musician and Orpheus, of course, is yeah. the, the, uh, the founder of, of music and, and so on. Uh, I, I, give, I hand it over to you. So let's talk, let's okay. talk, let's talk Orpheus. Okay, well, the... Uh, myth of Orpheus and uh, his lover Eurydice uh, is a great uh, tragedy in the Greek mythological pantheon. Um, it's familiar to some. Uh, Hymns of Orpheus uh, by Thomas Taylor. There's, um, you know, Orphic, even in uh, the movie Titanic, um, there was a, a scene where the string quartet is playing on the deck um, as it's starting to sink. And um, the band leader says, ah, that was a song, I don't I forget the title, but it had Orpheus in the oh, title. Um, and uh, this tragedy um, is, starts out in some ways very similar to the way uh, it was with Ceres and Persephone. Um, Eurydice actually was bitten by a poisonous snake um, and was... Uh, taken to the underworld um, after that. It wasn't like the earth opened up and she fell in, but it's still similar in a way that, you know, goes down to the underworld. Um, and then Orpheus um, has to go down and get her. Uh, and the symbolism in this myth uh, having to do with those two as a couple, they represent skill on behalf of Orpheus, brilliantly skilled uh, musician, could play anything. Uh, and Eurydice symbolizes the heart, uh, that the soul feeling in music, because otherwise you're just a technician that'll play scales all day. And that may wow a few people. Um, it's, it doesn't really do much for your heart. It doesn't, there's no soul in this music. Uh, it's just in chords and notes. Um, and that after she was taken away, uh, from him, his music was never the same. He was never able to do that uh, because he lost the beauty uh, in the music. So we need this technical skill, but we also need, you know, the the larger reasons, the beauty or the the purpose or the gift that we're doing these technical things, that it has to touch the heart in some ways. And it can't just be this. Otherwise, it's just kind of a material exercise. So being skilled as a musician, he was able to get past the three-headed dog, Cerebrus, um, by playing music. Um, this motif comes up a lot, and there's different ways to, uh, you can put them to sleep, you can bribe them, you know, there's different ways to get around these, this three-headed dog as the gatekeeper to the underworld. But he goes down, and, um, and Persephone's there. And so when Orpheus, you know, then bargains with uh, with. Pluto and Hades and, um, and, you know, Persephone actually has plays a role and they make a bargain. They say, okay, you can have her, you can um, take her back up to the, uh, the upper world because he realized the lengths that Orpheus was willing to go through to, uh, 
risk his own soul to uh, recapture her. Uh, but the deal was, as you're ascending to the earth plane from the underworld, don't look back, was the admonition. Don't turn around and check your progress. Make sure she's still there. Um, and when the end was in sight, he did turn around and look at her and barely got a glimpse of her as she got sucked back into the underworld. And I know there's a Bob Dylan record um, called Don't Look Back um, and a documentary of the same title. Uh, so, you know, that may, uh, Boston had a song, mm -hmm, Don't Look mm -hmm. Back. Um, you know, I, I believe, anyway, I haven't talked to these people or read it in an interview, but I, I believe that that's related yeah, that to this. Yeah, that would make sense. Just Don't yeah. Look Back. Um, because it's so you know strong in the the myth of music, and of course you know to finish this tale up when uh, Orpheus uh, he made it out alive, but his soul was dead. She wasn't there anymore, and his music, um, although maybe it impressed some people, it just it didn't inspire him, and it it gets even more tragic after that. Yep. He uh, winds up on an island, and some you know other characters come in and uh, I think behead him at some point. Yes. Um, yeah, exactly. It's interesting though, because it, I think it ties into, and Manly Hall has a nice quote with this. And I think this is one of those, those mythological stories that represent those, those human beings, <clears throat> excuse me, that are willing to, to suffer, um, you know, for the sort of forward movement of man in essence and manly hall puts it this way he says orpheus is one of the many immortals who have, who have sacrificed themselves that man that mankind might have the wisdom of the gods you know and you see this played out later on in in obviously in tales of of uh living and dying gods and other mythologies and those sorts of uh, that sort of symbolic idea is captured in a lot of uh, in a lot of um histories and stories it's of course in uh uh, in the stories of Jesus as well, so there is that kind of suffering and and uh, and love and sacrifice uh, that goes on so that we may live a better life as as human beings in, in the whole. Um, another one of the interesting things that he points out uh, is that Orpheus was considered in 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 Greece the founder of theology, uh, the institutor of morals, the first of the prophets, prince of poets, of course the uh, uh, the muse of music musicians in general, or the uh, teacher of musicians in general, and he taught the Greeks the secret, the, uh, excuse me, the sacred rites and mysteries, and in addition was also the founder of, of Greek mythology. So a very very important figure uh, in the in the uh, mythological understanding of uh, of the Greeks of the ancient Greeks. Um, so. Unfortunately, we don't have a huge amount of time, and you did a very good job uh, encapsulating that, that mythology and, and talking about that. Thank you. So the last one we're going to talk about, oh, sure. uh, very briefly, is the, uh, the, the Bacchic and Dionysiac rites, Bacchus and Dionysus. Uh, Dionysus, of course, the son of Zeus and Semele. Uh, Dionysus essentially was, he, he was staring into a mirror, there's a mythology. It's it's rather involved mythology, and you can read it. But he stared into a mirror and sort of found himself, sort of like the Narcissus story. And then at this point, he was torn apart by Titans or the other gods, and they boiled and roasted him. And then Pallas, uh, also known as Athena, rescued the heart of Dionysus, and he was able to be resurrected. 
Uh, one's reminded of uh, Osiris uh, and Isis. Yes. Then um, at that point, Jupiter destroys the Titans, and there's and then the Titans actually form form humanity, the basis for humanity. So there's a it's a it's a beautiful myth, and it's very important. So you read that you'll read that around page seventy six in the uh, reader's version uh, of the book. The um, the thing that really blew me away was where uh, Manly Hall points out that Dionysus represents the unity among the diversity. It's the, the unifying, sort of unified, uh, the unified consciousness behind the diversity and multi- multiplicity, which is life. I found that very interesting. And that's very analogous to the idea of the uh, Buddha consciousness or Christ consciousness. And those, those figures really mythologically in a lot of ways are related. Buddha, uh, Christ, Dionysus, Bacchus, Bacchus, of course, the, the Roman, the Roman name and Dionysus, the, uh, the Greek name. Um, the, uh, and, and he brings up another point again about the heart. And of course, Jesus, Buddha and Dionysus are all known as sort of heart based or faith, faith oriented type, type uh, figures. The ancients said that, that, that man does not know the gods by logic or reason, but rather by realizing the presence of the gods within himself. And in essence, I think Dionysus represents that, that God within, within man. It's one of the very, very, very early mythological ideas of God within man. Um, so I found that to be interesting. Did you, uh, what did you pull out of this, this portion of it that stuck out for you? Uh, well, that it's a process of integration. This just as in, you know, with the Orphic and Eleusinian that, you know, the heart or the soul uh, gets separated from the body. Uh, this is actually even more uh, fragmented um, that it has been dispersed and separated from this unified, you know, more spiritual, more divine um, origin. And that that is the, the, again, like you said, like, um, Isis and Osiris, you know, going out and collecting all the pieces of the body to, to reconstruct the God, that this is something that we do with ourselves, that it is when we can integrate all these fragments that, you know, little pieces of us get, well, I had to give a little piece at work and a little piece there. And, oh, that was a childhood dream, but I had to let that go. You know, they, they're there, they're still hanging around, but they're, we're disconnected mm. from them. And it's, it's by bringing them together that it's a very integrated uh, act of pulling these these parts together that once you do um, you you return back to this unified field with all the pieces in place so i got a very uh, this either disentangled um but then just to bring this separate uh separateness back to a unified presence and then then there is wholeness that's you know, great is, yeah you know holistic healing it's a whole reminded uh, uh, yeah, i'm reminded word. of uh, the idea of the self as the organizing principle in jungian in the jungian uh psychology and then the different parts of oneself that are sort of fragmented that need to be brought under control of the of the self with a capital s and the the sort of mediating influence is the is the ego that does that but i think uh those that fragment idea is a very powerful very powerful one um and it relates to um like this last chapter uh, or last paragraph rather of this chapter 
um, where they're talking about the Dionysian artificers, the architects um, of, uh, you know, that, and that, and, you know, relating it to, you know, what would become Freemasonry um, that, you know, again, that's building, you're constructing something, you need a true cornerstone, you need a firm yeah. foundation, you need, you know, true walls, and you have to have a well-placed keystone, you know, all these, you know, stone building things. Again, you're, you're bringing these things together that you're yeah. constructing a whole that's greater than all well, these. They say in Freemasonry, you know, building, building better men. That's the, that's the goal of Freemasonry in general. And they, yeah, that's the allegory. Use the, yeah. uh, you know, they use that allegory of, of, of actually a building of stones and shaping rough stones into smooth ones and so on. And I think that's a really fantastic uh, allegory. Uh, let me read that last, uh, that last paragraph because it it's, it's, it's very cool and it has a lot of neat stuff in it. So let me go ahead and just read it out. Uh, it's on page 78. The, the Dionysiac architects constituted an ancient secret society in principles and doctrines much like the modern Freemasonic order. They were an organization of builders bound together by their secret knowledge of the relationship between the earthly and the divine science of architectonics. They were supposedly employed by King Solomon in the building of his temple, although they were not Jews, nor did they worship the God of the Jews, being followers of Bacchus and Dionysus. The Dionysiac architects erected many of the great monuments of antiquity. They possessed a secret language and a system of marking their stones. They had annual convocations and sacred feasts. The exact nature of their doctrines is unknown. It is believed that, that Hiram Abif was an initiate of this society. Hiram Abif is, of course, a mythological figure in Freemasonry. Uh, that's really a neat, uh, a neat paragraph and pregnant with a lot of symbolic uh, meaning. I enjoy it very much. And I think that's one of the neat things about this book is there's just so much to, to, to dig into. So, Well, that uh, brings up something that actually loops it back to the beginning of, of our talk today, that the architect in this sense, they're, they're working in the mundane world with the rocks and the stones and all these things. It's not a removal to some Valhalla or some higher you know, monastery on the mountain peak, they're actually working mm -hmm. on the earth with earth things, uh, but they're divinely guided uh, in their workings with. So, you know, I, I know with spiritual practice, you know, sometimes in extreme senses, we think, well, it's just, I'm going to remove myself from the world. That's the profane. And I'm going to be off in this spiritual world. As long as you're inhabited in a body living on earth, uh, chances are you're going to have to do some earthly things. Um, but they're going to be guided by this divine architect, you know, this master builder that is moving you yeah. and animating yeah. your choices and informing and inspiring um, those things. But it, it's not even the upper and the lower world, worlds aren't that separate. There, there is a connection with the superior and inferior, the sacred and mundane, uh, a greater and lesser, upper and lower. Uh, you definitely want to make this move towards higher yeah. and higher, but in a building, you can't, you can't really build the penthouse. You don't build that without having a basement. No, for sure. Lobby yeah. and a mezzanine and the first, you know, floors. Um, it's, it's a building upon, but there is a guidance. There well, is that's where the grand, yeah, grand exactly. architect. And I like that, uh, that metaphor that he uses that image of the, 
uh, that we talked about at the beginning when I read uh, a bit. Manley Hall talks about a a tree with its uh, roots in heaven and its branches reaching out to the to the earth, you know, and that's really that that connection. That's that cosmic tree. Uh, that's the connection between between heaven and earth, and really that's what humanity is is that that connection uh we're in that i guess liminal yeah. state we're part earth part, part divine and we are part divine uh and it's our job to manage both of that's those a, that's a great way to put it it's a great way to put it and that's you know that's a nice place to 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 leave off uh it's you know that's really the the crux of this work is 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 finding that um that balance within ourselves between the earthly and the, and the divine and to, to wrestle with those issues and to, you know, use this philosophy to become better people, you know, and have faith that there is a higher, higher force that can help out and pray and meditate and find, uh, find your way through this, this life and just keep studying this material. And I just want to encourage everyone to, to keep moving forward. Even if you're discouraged, you're frustrated, you're depressed, or if you know, you're, or if everything's going great, either way, you can always lean on your higher source. You can lean on these, these teachings and this wisdom, and it will, it will not disappoint, you know? So do you, uh, do you have any uh, final parting words uh, for our listeners? Well, this material has certainly been helpful for me uh, to find meaning and sometimes strength in difficult when I get wrapped up in the world yeah things and the spiritual things seem so far away and where is god and what's you know what's going on here uh but to lean on these ancients and all these traditions and you know beautiful mystery schools that you know era after era century yeah. after century and all these cultures that they're really trying to keep the same flame alive and I want to dip my candle in that flame and then I can have my own local light uh, to help guide me through. And it's easy to get caught up in this, uh, you know, uh, the word hell uh, if etymologically uh, in some viewpoints uh, has to do with being walled, being walled in that you're trapped, you know. And so it's sometimes we can feel trapped in, in our lives and it's, you know, it's actually very easy to do. And it takes a little extra work to involve yourself with these mystery schools and teachings and traditions. And there is that leap of faith that there is a divine hand guiding things. And if I can tune in with that, my meanderings through this world uh, will be easier. I'll be able to do more with it and I'll be able to recapture my soul that sometimes gets buried in the well stuff put, of life. My friend. Well put. And that was Chris Sheridan. He is the author of The Spirit in the Sky. I am your host uh, as well, uh, co-host here, uh, Jason Napolitano. And the show you've been listening to is Cosmic Eye, and we're looking at Manley Hall's Secret Teachings, Ancient Mysteries and Secret Societies. That was the last part of that. Next week, uh, we're going to do Atlantis and the Gods of Antiquity, uh, which is uh, part, part five of, of the book. And uh, that should be a fun one. So do turn it, tune in for that. And like I said, please uh, check us out on anchor.fm under under the cosmic eye show and call in with your questions. If you, if you'd like to interact with us or you, you have something you'd like to uh, hear us talk about and let us know and do check out chrissheridan.com or cosmic to uh, hit up either Chris or I, if you want to 
uh, get us through there through email and so on. So thank you for uh, listening to the show and please join us next week and have a great week. Goodbye and God bless. Thank you for listening and please join us next Sunday for a new episode of Cosmic Eye. You can purchase If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate at Amazon.com or through our website, CosmicEye.org.